Wow, if you are, if you are visiting with us, you picked, you picked quite the Sunday. I mean, this is one of the most uh, controversial verses, at least over the last 100 years. So to be here today and to, uh, to talk with us about women being silent in, in churches, I just hope we all make it through the sermon. That would be a good thing. Um, Can somebody bring me a bottle of water? I, I forgot to, to take care of that. Um, by way of reminder, um, we're, we're, we're studying through the book of 1 Timothy, okay? And, and 1 Timothy is this letter that's being written by Paul. And Paul is writing to his dear friend... Uh, thanks, Pat. There you go. <laughs> Paul is writing to his dear friend Timothy, who he calls his, his son in, in the faith. So they are, they are close. Paul loves him like a son. And Paul is writing to Timothy, whom he has left to pastor a, a church that is in the, the city of Ephesus. And Paul is writing to Timothy, and he is encouraging him to stay the course. That's really why both of these letters are written near the end of Paul's life. He's writing to Timothy to encourage Timothy to stay the course. Because he, he's in a culture, he's in a city, and he's in a church that is not helpful to that end. It's a, a culture that is, is largely void of, of Christ and void of the gospel. And so everything around him, right, the air that he is breathing is, is counter-Christ. And so that can be a very difficult task as a pastor. And so Paul writes him and says, hey, listen, let me remind you, Timothy, this is what the course is. And this is how you need to keep the course. And not only you, Timothy, because this letter would have been read to the entire church, the entire congregation. So Paul is also encouraging the entire church, saying, Okay, Timothy, Timothy's church, here's the course. Make sure that you keep the course. And so Paul has been talking up generally. He's been talking specifically. And, and today, the text that we're looking at, we, we started it last week when we looked at verse 8. But he is now going to get into some specific instruction that is going to deal with men and women in the church. And he's going to make some pretty sharp distinctions about how men and women should actually function and the roles, a dirty word in our culture, the roles that they should play in family and in church. So it gets to the heart of what you see throughout your Bible and elsewhere in the New Testament, are talking about biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. So here's, here's an, an overview of why that is important. We are here, we, we gather together as God's people and have for 2,000 years, we gather together to sit under this revelation from God. Notice I didn't say book, because it's much more than a book. Okay, as Christians, you may not be a Christian, but as Christians, we believe that this is God's revelation. That He has revealed Himself through creation, for sure. That He's revealed Himself through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, for sure. But that He has primarily revealed Himself through His written Word. So we learn about ourselves. More importantly, we learn about God from the Bible. So we submit ourselves to this teaching. And throughout history, as God promised to do, He has appointed some, not all, but He has appointed some to be teachers. All learners. And all teachers in some regard. But He has appointed few and some 
that not all should presume to be James, should be teachers. And their job and their role is with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to open up this book with God's people and to say, friends, brothers, sisters, this is what God's Word says. And we don't throw it down on the ground and get on top of it. We put ourselves beneath God's Word. We submit to God's Word. And it becomes necessary in any culture to pay special care and attention to truths that are in this book that our society rejects or undermines. And one of the truths and the doctrines that is undermined significantly in 21st century America and misunderstood is biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And so we need to return to God's Word. And in His providence, He has us in 1 Timothy 2, 8-15, through 15, returning to this subject. We need to return to this subject in God's Word to say, okay, Lord, not what do we want, not what is popular, not what works, not pragmatism, but what does Your Word have to say about the identity and functionality of men and women? And Lord willing, we have hearts that want to submit to that even if there is a cost. So, thank you for still being here. Let me pray. If you have a one of the Bibles that we're, we give out, it's page 851. That's where we're going to be today. We're going to need the Holy Spirit's help. So let's pray. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your good and perfect word. Thank you for inspiring your children and your people who have gone before us to, to write down your truth so that we could hold on to it today. Thank you for speaking into every area of our life, whether it's our personal life, our family, uh, our work, church. Thank you for speaking into every area of our life and making it clear to us what is pleasing to you and what glorifies you. Father, may we be a people who are committed to glorifying you. May we be a people who are committed to bringing you honor. That our own agendas would be put aside. That our own missions would be put aside. And that we would remember that we are, at the end of this, that we are your little children. And you are our good and gracious Father who has much to say about how we behave as your people. So Lord, may we be committed to holiness. Today I ask that you would pierce our hearts, that we would grow in being committed to holiness in our masculinity and in our femininity. Because you are good and perfect and you do all things well and you have made us well. And we want to respond with hearts of thanksgiving, 
gratitude, and obedience. So we love you and give you praise, honor, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles and read here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Let's see how this ties into everything before, because Paul says in verse 8, I desire then. So in other words, Paul is saying, based on everything I've said up until this point, I desire then, looking back, because of these verses where he has just talked about, you remember our our main point last week that he made clear in verses 1 through 7, and that is that the godly life which pleases God is a quiet and hopeful life of evangelistic prayer for all people. That is the godly life that Paul describes God is after and desires. That we as Christians would live godly and quiet and peaceful lives and that our lives would be characterized by evangelistic prayer for all people. Not just our friends, not just our church, not just people who look and talk and act like us, but for all people. And that is rooted in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 2. That way of life that we're supposed to live is rooted in God's way of life. He makes it clear it is rooted in His desire that all people would be saved. And that is demonstrated by Jesus Christ coming and giving His life as a ransom for all people. And so Paul says pray for all people. People, all people, all people, all people, three times in a few verses. And this is the life that God desires us to live. And now he just gets more specific all the way through chapter 3, verse 14. He gets more specific now about men, this is what this looks like. Women, this is what this looks like. Elders, deacons, church structure. This is how God will be glorified. These are the lives that are pleasing to Him. Which is why when he wraps up, wraps up this section in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I am coming to tell you this is how you ought to behave in the household of God. Now some of us do not like to be told how to behave. Some of you haven't liked to have been told how to behave from the time you were children. Some of you thought when you left your parents' house that no one any longer was going to tell you how you ought to behave. But as a Christian, God is forever telling you how you ought to behave. And there is a way that you can behave that will dishonor Him and will disregard Him. And there is a way that you can behave that will honor Him and will regard his word so i desire then paul says that in every place the men should so first he addresses the men second he addresses the women okay there are directives that are made clear for the men in the church And then there are directives that are made clear for the women in the church. But we start with the men. This is what the men should do. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Paul, God, 
What are you looking for? What do you desire the men in the church to do? The directive here is pray. So we talk for a bit now to the men and the women. Listen. Men, we are called to pray. How to pray? What manner? Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul says in every place, in every church, I want the men to pray. And I don't want them to be angry and quarreling and fighting. Instead, I want them to pray. And I want them to pray lifting holy hands. I want men to step out and visibly, not just prayer at home in your prayer closet, whatever that is, but prayer in public, in front of others, specifically we're going to see in front of the women. That you should lead, and this is a great way for men to lead in the church through prayer. Here's some verses where you see hands being lifted up. In regards to family and suffering, Lamentations 2.19, Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. Or for mercy... We lift our hands and pray for mercy. Psalm 28, 2. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. In worship, Psalm 63, verse 4 and 5. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And in Exodus, we see Moses raising his hands. In 1 Samuel, we see Solomon raising his hands. We see Jesus raising his hands. We see the disciples raising their hands. We see Paul raising his hands. We see this posture of prayer in the Bible. Where men are visibly taking initiative and leading in prayer. So to the men, this is what God calls us to to do. So I want you, desire that you would take initiative in your church. Men are called to lead in their church. Specifically called to initiate and to lead from a heart that is loving and humble. And to lead in a way that demonstrates to everyone around submission to God. So the primary way that men are to lead is not turning to everyone else and telling them what to do. Which is what we associate leadership with. The primary way that men are called to lead in the church is to be men who are stepping out and praying. So are men today in the church characterized as leaders who pray? Do most people who are part of a church, when they think of prayer, when they think of demonstrative prayer, they think of the men in their church? Or do they think of the women? 
Or is it often women who are leading this charge? Is it often women who are filling the gap? Is it often women who are organizing prayer? Is it often women who are visibly engaged in a worship service? Or is it men? Men, we should initiate and lead in God's church. We should pray. We should sing. We should sing, men. When you gather together here on a Sunday, you need to sing. Now, if you're not a believer, you're not, don't, don't worry about it. But Christian men, when you come here, you should sing. And I've got to tell you, I sit up here in the front and I do not hear you sing. Now, it might be the room. I've heard we have a dead room and sound doesn't travel. So maybe you're belting it out and maybe it's going. But, but it's, not, it's not audible up here and it should be. Now, I hear and it's beautiful. I hear the women singing. I do. I hear that. And I love it. You know how singing corporately works, right? Somehow you, you can take a bunch of bad voices and a couple good ones, and when you all sing together, it just sounds good. So we have that going on. But I don't hear, I don't hear the men. Men, you should see it as an obligation. When you come and worship with God's people, you should be leading in prayer. You should be leading in song. You say, well, I don't sing really well. Now, we both know that that doesn't stop you from singing in some places. But do you sing here? Do you raise your voice? You say, oh, well, that's not in a key that I can sing. Well, sing in a different key. Sing. Don't tell me that music and instruments and aesthetics are somehow constricting you and prohibiting you from worship. Men, when we come together, we should visibly and audibly be leading in the worship of our God. So whether you sing well or you don't sing well, I think part of what Paul is getting at is turn up the volume in your worship. Initiate. Lead. Don't worry so much about what people are thinking. So Paul desires that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women. He has a lot more to say about women. Likewise. In other words, just like he told men in every place, so two women in every place. Including Veritas Church. And he's going to give a principle and then he's going to work it out specifically And it is going to boil down to women in the church. Paul is asking women in the church not to draw attention to themselves. Specifically, not to draw attention to themselves in dress and speech. By the way they dress themselves and by the way they talk and speak and interact in church. 
Paul is saying, generally speaking, I want you to do that in a way, women, that is not going to draw attention to you, that is not going to take attention and focus off of God where it needs to be and put it on you. That's his, that's his overarching encouragement here, but this is what he says. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So the first thing he addresses is the, the clothing. Interesting, the Bible speaks about this. Let's break it down. First of all, Paul says, ladies, women, and now we speak specifically to the women and men, listen. Paul says, first of all, to women, adorn yourself. Now, here's the thing, okay? It is good and wonderful for women to adorn themselves. God never addresses the men and says, this is how I want you to adorn yourselves because men are not adorning themselves. Women are beautiful. Men are not beautiful. Very different. It's always awkward when that magazine comes out and it says, you know, the 50 most beautiful people and I see like a man on the cover. I'm like, masculine, maybe. Attractive to a woman, maybe. But beautiful on the inside maybe, but come on, outwardly, God has created women very differently than He has created men. And God has created women beautifully. And all the men said, right? Amen. God has created women beautifully. And it is good for a woman to adorn herself. But she needs to be careful how she adorns herself. So there is nothing wrong with, in fact, we encourage, there's nothing wrong with ladies adorning yourselves. There's nothing wrong with paying attention to how you dress. There's nothing wrong with expressing yourself and who you are through what you wear. God has made you beautiful and unique and it is, it is okay for you to take your time getting ready. Men, it's not as okay for you to take your time getting ready. I get ready in about five minutes, Right? My wife almost goes, I mean, this, this restricts spontaneity in our home because I can't just go and say, hey, listen, we're, we're leaving, and, and then say to her, just, when she says, well, what am I going to wear? And I say, well, just throw something on. And she looks at me like I'm speaking a different language. Let me throw something. This is going to take time. Takes time because she pays attention and, and she, she pays attention to her, her hair and to her shoes and to her clothes and to her makeup and she wants to present and, and that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Now guys, that is not what we do. Okay, it takes us maybe five minutes. I was I was paying attention the other day to all the products that my wife uses. I mean it's just it's just amazing. When I, when I get in the shower, some of you are like, where's this going? But in the shower, there is, I have one bottle. This is wonderful invention in the last five years. And it has everything. It's for my hair. It's for my body. It's like toothpaste. Everything I need in one bottle. It's one of the greatest advances in masculinity in the last 15 years. Everything just in one bottle. And I love it. I get in and get out. But around that bottle are like, 
I think I counted 12 bottles of just all these different things. And one of them had organic um, botanicals. And, and one was a vegan shampoo. So good to know there's no milk or beef in my wife's shampoo. I still don't even understand these things. But she is using all of this. She's using this to prepare herself and to get ready. Men don't do that. I know it's popular for men to be metrosexual, but metrosexuality is not masculinity. Okay, I know, and you may think that girls think it's cute that you use bath salts and drink coconut water and exfoliate and have five different shampoos, but she doesn't think it's cute in a I want to marry you sort of way. It's very counterproductive for your future and your family's future. Hey, what are we saying? We're laughing. There, there is a difference, right? There is a difference between how God has created men and how God has created women. And so it is perfectly normal and good, and we encourage for women to adorn themselves. But, Paul gives specific instruction that they should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty, and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So he gives a timeless principle and then he gives a cultural application. The timeless principle that still exists today, ladies, is that you should adorn yourselves with modesty and self-control. When women come and to gather together in public worship... You should do that in a way that you are using modesty and self-control. And then he gives a cultural application for that context in Ephesus. And there it was costly attire, it was braided hair and gold or pearls. So don't worry if you have, so if you have a braid today, there's the door. We're not saying that. You've got gold, pearls, we love the braids, the gold, the pearls. Okay, that's all all right. But in this context, apparently, there were gals that were using gold and using pearls and using braided hair. It communicated something very different in that context. It was distracting. They weren't being modest. They weren't using self-control. And Paul gives an example and says, you need to stop doing this. But... Adorn yourselves, verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so Paul makes this very clear in all of his writing that it's really, okay, even beyond adorning yourself physically, it is really what is inside. Sounds cliche, but true. It is what is inside and the beauty that comes from within that truly counts. And so Paul says, Pay attention to your soul. Pay attention to your spirit. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. God says this is what real beauty is. Not how our culture defines it, by the way, even inner beauty. But inner beauty to God is a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit. Truly 
beautiful qualities in a woman today and men who have their heads screwed on straight and haven't breathed in too much of the cultural air will affirm that what is truly beautiful in a woman is a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. We could spend a whole sermon on that. But a woman who is able with, with whatever circumstances that are going on around her and even with whatever kind of husband she may have, but is able to still maintain a gentle and quiet spirit because of her love for Christ and her devotion to Christ and her dependency on Christ. And she's able to weather all of that with a calm about her that is gentle and quiet, pointing to her relationship with Christ. There is nothing more beautiful and there is nothing incidentally more attractive in a woman. Totally beautiful. So you see, this is where Paul is coming from when he speaks to these ladies in this church. Saying when you come to church, do not dress ostentatiously. Do not dress seductively. Resist the temptation that is in our society as well to draw attention to yourself. Resist the temptation to be affirmed in how you look physically. Resist the, the, the temptation to receive attention from men that feels like but isn't love by dressing a certain way. Resist that temptation. And he's saying, especially when you come to a worship service because it's a worship service. And the whole purpose for us gathering together is to worship God. So that's number one. Don't draw attention to yourself in the way you dress, ladies. But second, and even more under fire in today's context, is do not also draw attention to yourself by your speech. This is where he goes. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly... With all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So, first, he admonishes women to learn. Let a woman learn. God expects that in the church, that when we gather together, that men as well as women should gather together according to 2 Peter 3.18 with the intention of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are not advocates, as this verse can be misconstrued to say. We are not advocates of chauvinism. We do not say or believe that, well, men, we gather together to hear God's word and to learn. Women, don't really worry about it. As you can see in a couple of verses, you're not going to be teaching anyway. In fact, if you want to stay home, in the kitchen, getting lunch ready, taking care of the kids, that would be just fine. That's chauvinism, right? 
Okay, God is not a chauvinist. So Paul says, I want women to learn. Now, some of you have heard this. That was a radical thing to say in this culture because the men in the Talmud said, come to learn, and the women come to hear. We don't really expect you gals to use your brain and to think about anything. Just kind of sit there, look pretty, and hear. That was the, that was the cultural way of life in this first century. So that's pretty radical for Paul to say, no, women, you should learn. It is a good thing to learn. My wife, Kristen, she is a learner. She just taught at the, the women's b- b- book study yesterday. And so one of the greatest nights this week is we stayed up late and we were preparing for teaching that both of us were going to do. Different platforms, but teaching that we were both going to do. My wife loves knowledge. She loves to learn. Women, you should want to learn God's Word. Don't just leave that to your husband. Don't just leave that to your father. Don't just leave that to your boyfriend. Don't just leave that to the men in your church and in your life. You should be reading. You should be studying. You should be praying. You should be thinking. You should be articulating doctrine and truth and lining up with God's Word. Women should learn. But Paul, how should women learn? Because he doesn't stop there. How should a woman come and learn? And he says, learn quietly with all submissiveness. Okay, Paul, what do you mean? We hear the principle. Women should learn quietly with all submissiveness. What does that look like? And he gets more specific, doesn't he? And he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man, but rather what is the positive instruction he gives. Those are the negatives, no teaching, no authority over a man. What should they do? And what is his answer? It doesn't sound very aggressive. It sounds passive. It doesn't sound active, but he says, but rather they are to what? Remain quiet. Now, there have been, as you can expect, a lot of different interpretations over this set of verses. But it's interesting, mostly in the last 100 years. Mostly in the last 100 years has there been any controversy over what Paul is saying here. But, but two common interpretations is some believe that, that Paul actually, when he said this, meant the opposite. Kind of a goofy interpretation. (laughs) Actually, what Paul meant is men should not teach and men should not exercise authority. Or another more popular interpretation is, well, this doesn't apply to all women. This applies to the girls gone wild in Ephesus. Okay, they were maybe the false teachers that he was talking about. Okay, they were uneducated women. Okay, he's talking to those women. 
I do not permit those women to teach. I do not permit those women to exercise authority over a man. And so that then makes it so that those verses, like the braided hair, golden pearls, those specific instructions don't apply if you interpret it that way. They no longer apply to any of us, and we only hold on to the, well, women should learn and then disregard everything else. So you've got to look deeply and make sure we understand what exactly is Paul saying. And here's the conclusion we come to, and then I'll tell you why. Actually, what Paul is saying here is a timeless and concrete expression of a woman's submission to male headship. Try to use as many controversial words in one sentence as I could <laughs> right there. I literally saw some gals like twitching when I read that verse. So let's read it again. This is, okay, Paul's admonition here for, for women. This is timeless. In other words, where we're going this morning isn't, this doesn't apply to us today. Rather, this is a timeless and concrete expression of a woman's submission to male headship, which is pleasing to God. Now, the reason it is timeless and the reason we know this is because of the verses that follow. Because Paul is now going to say, for... In other words, do this for, because, he's going to give the foundation for all of that. And he does not root his instruction in culture. He roots his instruction in creation. He doesn't say, okay, do not permit a woman to da 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 because, for, the women in Ephesus are uneducated, they're ignorant, They're obnoxious. He doesn't go there. Rather, he goes all the way back to creation. In other words, these instructions that Paul is giving are creational. It somehow is tied into what God established in Adam and Eve. Therefore, it is a timeless and concrete expression of a woman and her submission to male headship. So what is the biblical basis? What does he say here? What is the biblical basis for verses 8 through 12? Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now we've got to figure out what that means. Because that almost sounds silly at first. It's like a na 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 And there's more to it than that. Well, Adam was made first. You know. Verse 14. Yet... Yeah, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So he appeals to, first, the order of creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then he appeals, secondly, to the deception of Eve. Adam was created first, Eve sinned first. Here's what Paul is saying for clarity's sake. Paul calls for men to lead. Let's put these all together. Paul calls for men to lead and women to learn quietly with all 
submissiveness in accordance with their God-ordained roles, men and women. He asks us in accordance with God-ordained roles. He commands that women not teach in this public worship context and that women not exercise authority over men in the church. That's Paul's clear instruction here. He is clearly saying that I want men to lead and I want women to follow. I want women to submit to this male leadership. And I want that to be demonstrated. Here's how that looks practically. Looks practically by I do not want women to teach in this public context. They are not to teach and they are not to have a role where they are exercising authority over men in the church. Otherwise, this isn't going to go well. It's not happening. They're not learning with submissiveness. Men aren't leading and women aren't following. And then, after Paul gives this instruction, he points back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3 as his basis. And so let's do a synopsis of what you find in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Do we see this this order, men lead, women follow, do we see this order in creation? If you go back and read through Genesis chapter 1 through 3, you see that what Paul affirms here, it is true, God made man first. Wasn't an accident. God decided to make man first. Then we see that God created woman, and He created woman, not just second, but He created woman from the man. You remember that? He caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep, and then He takes a rib, and He creates from this rib a woman. And she was created from the man. And it says she was created from the man... Okay, chapter 2, verse 19 of Genesis, to be a helper that is suitable to man. So not only did God create Adam first, and then God created the woman from the man, but He created the woman for the man. This is why He created her. You will be a helper suitable. So He gives Adam these instructions of what he is to do, and how he is to care and tend for the garden. And then he brings him because he said it is not good for man to be alone. So I will make for him a helper suitable. And this is the creating of Eve. Now, we live in a culture that twists that and makes it sound like being a helper is some sort of degradation. The truth is the Psalms call God our helper. So is that condescending to God? As well, the implication is that men need help. So I will create a helper that is suitable for him. A woman, women, okay, you have, if God would bring you into a marriage relationship, you have been created as a wife for that man. You have been created to be a helper suitable. You're created from him and for him from his side. Luther was known for saying that woman was not created from the head, of man, that she should rule over him. Woman was not created from the foot of man, that she should be 
dragged around in subjection to him, but rather woman was created from the side of man to help him that they may worship and honor God together. Created from the man, created for the man. Man named the woman in a significant way. God gave permission to man to name Eve, to kata her, in the same way that God called the night, the darkness night. He gives Adam permission to name Woman, And then you see that it is the man, chapter 2, verse 24, it is the man that God expects to lead and take initiative. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It is not the prerogative of the woman, it is not her responsibility to leave the home and get a job and to prepare for marriage and then to go out and find a husband. I know that's how it works often in our day, but God's Word says that no, it is the men who are to take initiative and to be responsible here to leave their father and mother. That means get a job and get a place to live. So we're like, so that's next. (laughs) Then, then you're eligible for marriage because you're not eligible to bring your wife home to live in your parents' basement. So you'd need somewhere to put her. So then man, leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and then the two shall become one flesh. And this is the responsibility that God puts on the wife. So you see this all throughout Scripture then. Not just in Genesis 1 through 3, you see this established, and then you see the patriarchy, and you see men leading, and then you see Jesus come. A man, not a woman. And Jesus calls to himself 12 disciples who are men, and the apostles are men. And then you have Paul's New Testament thorough teaching on the headship of men. So we cannot twist and malign and chop up these verses to say something that they do not say. And that is that in regards to men and women, men are called to lead. Men are called to humbly and lovingly lead in a God-glorifying direction. This is the responsibility of you if you are a man. At whatever age you are, you are to do whatever you need to do to equip yourself to lead. To lead yourself. To learn how to get out of bed and to get a job and to have a home and to work hard. And a family, if God would bless you with a family, to lead a family. If you're in a church, to lead in a church. God has called you to lead. It is inherent to Him making you a man. And there is no pressure at all, even in the church today, for men to be men. Here, men, you must be men. And lead in a God-glorifying direction. Women. The clear teaching of Scripture. Women are called to help. A beautiful, necessary word that we cherish here. You are called to help men lead in a God-glorifying direction. There is head, there is helper. And Scripture is thorough. So it's interesting, we go on from creation and you read Genesis chapter 3 and you read what Satan did when he came and the very thing that Satan did was to undermine manhood and womanhood because who does he go to? 
He goes to Eve. And he begins to interact with Eve. And we learn later in the story that though we may have thought that Eve was by herself in the garden, right? We learn later that who's been standing next to her the whole time? Adam, just holding her purse. While she talks with Satan. While she interacts with Satan. And so Eve leads Adam and Adam follows Eve. Do you see that in Genesis chapter 3? Adam totally abdicates his responsibility. God gave Adam the instructions of what he was to do in the garden, what they were allowed to eat, and what they weren't allowed to eat. Satan comes and is lying to his wife as Satan lies to women today. And oftentimes, as in Genesis chapter 3, men just stand there abdicating their responsibility. Well, she wants to lead, or it's not my responsibility, or I'm tired, or I had a long day at work, or whatever you have. He abdicates his responsibility and ladies being the good, godly ladies that they are will, with good intentions, lead in his place. And you have Genesis 3 all over again and it doesn't go well. So you have role reversal. And Adam abdicates his responsibility. He follows Eve. But then this is interesting. So sin comes in the world. And then God comes down. And who does he go to? Eve sinned first, right? But he goes looking for Adam. God goes looking for Adam because he's holding the head responsible. Men, in your marriage. Okay, I've had a couples come into counseling. And I've had men who want to point the finger at their wife and say, well, she did this and she did that and she did this and she did that. And I've often had to say, I do not care who is culpable, who is going to be responsible. You're both just going to sit here and point the finger at each other and say, he said, she said, he did, she did. That gets us nowhere. Who's going to be responsible? Well, I'll tell you who God I'll tell you who God says needs to stand up and say, I'll take responsibility. And it is the husband. It is the man. God comes looking for Adam and everybody blames each other. God blames his wife, or Adam blames his wife, and then Adam blames God. It's just a mess. Adam says, well, she made me do it, and you wouldn't have made her, just saying. And then Eve says, Satan made me do it. And she said, everybody's just doing this. But God holds Adam responsible. So it's interesting you see that sin entered... You want to talk about why this is an important issue? Sin entered the world through role reversal. Through biblical manhood and biblical womanhood getting maligned. Sin entered the world. That is why when God then brings the curse and He talks to Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, He's about to give him this consequence for what He has done. And He's eaten the fruit. That was bad. That's what God said not to do. But do you remember what He said before that? He said, Cursed is the ground because you listen to your wife. And what's great to listen. But we say you never listen to your wife. No. But what God was saying was, you should have stood up. And opened your mouth and got between her and Satan. And you should have spoken truth to her. 
Instead, you just listened to it and went along with it and let her believe these lies. And now everyone's cursed. And so the consequence was heavy. It was heavy. Because he was not a good head. And Eve was not a good helper. And is it not the struggle that still exists today in the world we live in? Paul's point is, when Eve led and Adam followed, it did not go well. This is why when he gives these instructions for the church, he points back to Genesis 1-3. He says, do you remember how this went in the garden? Man is to lead. A woman is to follow. This is the timeless biblical truth that is foundational to Paul's call for the churches to have these roles made clear in their church. Women, in the context of public worship, your calling is not a teaching or authoritative role, but rather to learn quietly. And Paul and God's reason is Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So I don't know if you know this, but this interpretation is not popular. Seriously? (laughs) It's not popular. And most Christians would admit today that there are problems, deep problems in marriage and family today. but we come up with these superficial diagnosis of what the problem is. And then we offer superficial remedies. We just need to increase your communication skills and enhance your sex life and get more tools in your relationship toolbox and learn your love language and on and on and on. There could be some value to some of that. But it's a superficial diagnosis of the problem and there's superficial remedies because we don't want to go back to God's Word and say, what does God call us to do as men? And what does God call us to do as women? And is it possible that things are going sideways because we are not honoring God in how we're functioning in these marriage relationships? And Paul would say, yes. Friends, these are commands from Paul. And Paul speaks, he says, authoritatively from Jesus Christ. These are commands from Paul to dismiss this and to say, well, this doesn't really matter. I don't really agree with Paul or I don't like that or I don't think that's true. To dismiss that is to be clear. It is to dismiss God. It is to dismiss his truth and say, well, that's not convenient and that's not pragmatic. And, and, and to somehow, it's almost blasphemous to say that, well, Jesus didn't know what things were going to look like in 2,000 years. No, he did. And he chose to set no precedence in his ministry for what is rampant in the church today. And so this is so applicable to us. This does not mean that we are saying or that God is saying that men and women are not equal. To be clear, 
This has nothing to do with the equality of men and women. Because that's what feels like is getting compromised. And that's what some would like to convince you. that Well, if you do that, and if you teach that he's a head and she's a helper... And you teach that women can't teach in this public context. You teach that women can't have authority over men. Well, then you're saying that men are better. And you're saying that women are inferior. And that is not what God is saying. The biblical truth is this. Is that God made you. And if you are a man, God made you. And if you are a woman, God made you. That means that He has a purpose for you. That means he has a plan for you and an intention for you. And you need to figure out what that is. If you're a man, what does it mean to be a man? If you're a woman, what does it mean to be a woman? The second thing we know is that God created you, but he created you in his image. The Bible doesn't say he created men in his image and women in the image of a, a box. or a, No. Male and female, Genesis 1, 26 and 7. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. So whether you're a man or a woman, God has created you in His image. That makes us equals. Equal in worth. Because we are equal in our identity before God as image bearers of Him. Men, you bear the image of God in unique ways. Women, you bear the image of God in unique ways. But we are both image bearers of God. We are equal in God's sight. But here's the biblical truth that we have to accept and many don't. Being equal does not necessitate being the same. And that is a lie. It is a lie to say that well, in order to be equal, we must be the same. Friends, Scripture teaches that we are equal in identity, but we are not equal in functionality. We are equal in the way that it truly counts in terms of our worth and value. Image bearers of God. But we are not the same when it comes to our functionality. Rather, men and women are different, and God means for men and women to come together and to complement one another and to complete one another and to function as men and to function as women and to bring God greater glory and honor in submission to His Word and His truth. While the Bible teaches that men and women are equal in identity, the Bible does not teach that men and women are equal in functionality. And remember that this is happening in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal in glory, equal in worth, equal in value, equal in majesty, and yet you have God the Son submitting to God the Father. You see them functioning in different roles. Well, different roles and submission, does that mean that they're not equal? No, that'd be blasphemy to say that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are not equal. They are equal. Your Bible teaches that you can have equality and distinction. The Son is submitting to the Father. The Spirit is submitting to both. The Son and the Father. And that does not compromise their equality. So too, a man and a woman in marriage function 
in different ways, fulfilling different roles. And the man is to be head and the woman is to be helper in submission to him with a gentle and quiet spirit. And they are both equal in God's sight and equally valuable in God's eyes and in the church's eyes. But they will function differently for the glory of God. Because more important to us is to honor Him and to glorify Him. So now to begin to wrap this up, what are the implications of Paul's teaching on us specifically as a church, you may be wondering. And I'm thinking three areas specifically that we here at Veritas are careful with because of this truth that is taught here and elsewhere. One is in terms of leadership. So Scripture makes it clear and based on what Paul is saying here that women are not to be elders in the church. Elders, pastors, or overseers, whatever word you would choose to use, are to be godly and qualified men. Which is why 1 Timothy 3.2 makes it clear that one of the qualifications is he needs to be a man. So if you are a woman and you are here at Veritas and you have aspirations of becoming one of the pastors here, that will not happen. Basically, that's it. You could be a deacon at Veritas Church. You can serve in many ways. You can teach. Remember what Paul has in mind. He has in mind the kind of teaching... Okay, that is going to undermine, that is going to undermine this relationship between biblical manhood and, and biblical womanhood. And elsewhere, it's very clear in Scripture that women are to teach. One, you are to teach other women. It's interesting the kinds of things that you are to teach them. But you're to teach them and teach them from God's Word. Women, you should be teaching other women. Women, you should aspire to be teachers at Veritas Church. But you will not, as a woman, teach from this pulpit. Because this, we believe, clearly, is the role of an elder and a pastor. And a woman cannot be an elder or a pastor. Therefore, this would be inappropriate and disobedient to God. That's all. But women, you should aspire to teach other women. Women, you should aspire to teach children. Your children. Our children here at Veritas. We need that. We need you. Often, especially with younger children, I believe that women are the best teachers. And if we think that that's some kind of second-rate teaching... Again, we're believing things that simply are not true and we have worldviews that are not biblical. I believe that as Priscilla and Aquila, women can even be involved in teaching other men if it's in the right context and perhaps in partnership with their husbands. But a woman clearly, Paul says, a woman cannot be an elder. So those are the implications in regards to leadership and in regards to teaching, as well in regards to ministry. And I'll just say this briefly, because this is a crucial truth of God's Word. We are careful, even in ministry here as a church, to not do things that are going to compromise biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. 
you've already seen that we do a lot together as a church and we, we, we separate, separate and segregate very little. And that's intentional. A lot of times, ministries like men's ministries and women's ministries, for one, they can become very time-consuming and can take you all from your God-given responsibilities. And you can end up at this study and at this study and at this program and at this program and in this ministry and in this ministry. And meanwhile, maybe you're not leading in your home the way you should be. And so we're careful because those ministries can become very time-consuming. We also believe that very easily in specific regards to women's ministry, that it is classic in churches today for women's ministry to supplant the leadership of a husband in the home. And there's a husband who is not doing what he should be doing and not teaching his wife and not loving her and protecting her and providing for her. And so ministries are developed to pick up the slack with good intentions but can very easily keep deadbeat husband very comfortable because he's handing his children over to youth ministry and he's handing his wife over to the women's ministry. And instead, he needs the men in the church to and confront him and to say, this is men's ministry. What are you doing with your family? And so it just causes us to be careful in how we even evaluate and look at ministry in the church. So let me close with this. And I'll read these. This is just where we ended up in our text. We are passionate about this as a church because a disregard for things like biblical manhood and womanhood uh, are, are rampant in our culture today. So there's a lot of passion that comes with it when we get to it in God's Word. But some of you... It's so easy. Some of you in this world and in this culture, breathing the air that you breathe and seeing the things that you see and growing up in the homes that you grew up in and functioning in relationships right now, this just seems ridiculous. This seems wrong. This seems like it would never work. This seems impossible. Like so much truth really in God's Word. And so there is just, there is naturally for us in this culture, right? There is huge, big resistance against this kind of word. And so let me just end trying to compel even further. Let us see why this is so important to pay attention to first. Bad and wrong views of manhood and womanhood. This is what this can lead to. Number one, initiates what could be a pattern of disregarding God's Word or maligning or relevantizing it. It's a slippery slope, in other words, when we just take certain subjects that the Bible is clear on and malign them 
It's not long before we get into other doctrines that are far more precious than this. It's not a coincidence that most egalitarian churches, an egalitarian church is a church that says, no, everything including elders is open to men and women. We're complementarian here. It is not a coincidence, though, that most egalitarian churches compromise on other doctrine as well. Other more important doctrine because of the slippery slope. Second, wrong views distort the glory that marriage is meant to display. Okay, this leading and the submission in marriage. You understand that that is a symbol and it is pointing to something even more beautiful and it is the relationship of Christ and His church. Christ leading His church and the church submitting to Christ. And if you malign these views and tweak it and say, I don't care who wears the pants... God gets robbed of glory in what He means to display. Third, there's five total. Third, wrong views of manhood and womanhood dismisses a husband's headship and so under-challenges men and robs wives of a picture of Christ's gospel love. If we take our foot off this pedal, as we want to do with so many things that are challenging we take this foot off the pedal, we under-challenge our men completely. It is not easy to lead. And our propensity from the curse on is to abdicate responsibility and say, no, it's fine. And we have wives who are more than willing to fill the gap. So we are prone to abdicate. And so we want to you know, to make people comfortable and get numbers up and things like that. We want to not put our foot on this pedal. And we want to under-challenge people. And we want to under-challenge men. And say things like, well, what works for you in your marriage? Instead of saying, listen, what's going to work for you is honoring God. And living according to His Word. And when we under-challenge men like that, we rob a wife of seeing the Christ-like gospel love and leadership that is supposed to be demonstrated in marriage. Fourth, when we have wrong views of manhood and womanhood, it dismisses a wife's submission and so under-challenges women and robs husbands of a picture of gospel response. So as well, when we take the foot off this pedal, we under-challenge women. Women, you know, it is difficult to submit Especially because there are no perfect husbands. There are few good husbands. And so submitting to the leadership of a husband is extremely difficult. And you know from the curse it says that the woman's desire is to, her desire is for her husband. And in chapter 4 verse 7, it shows us what that desire is. It's the same desire that sin has to master and control us. So the desire that a woman has for her husband is to master and control him. And every wife knows that challenge. The temptation to, when the decision's not going the way you want, when it's not going the way you want it to go, when you have a better idea. Temptation, master and control. Manipulate. Get loud. Threaten. Whatever. Tactics. And so we must not under-pressure women, but rather talk frankly and openly about biblical submission. 
a willful submission, not a demanded submission, a willing submission that submits to a husband because she knows that ultimately Christ has her. And then finally, wrong views of manhood and womanhood require less identification with the substitutionary atonement of Jesus because living the right way must look to the cross for continuous grace and strength and understanding. And so when we stop speaking from God's Word to one another, and we stop challenging one another the way God's Word challenges us, we need the Gospel less. That's the big issue. All our attempts to live the way we want to live and not in accordance with God's Word are an attempt for us to live without the Gospel. But God brings difficult life on us so that we must turn to Christ. So that we must need the Gospel. So that we must understand and need strength and need grace. This... is what God has for us. So I hope to see seven of you next week. (laughs) We may not need a second service anymore. If you have questions, I am just a man, and uh, I'm not going to articulate this ever as well as it needs to be articulated. So if you heard something that just sounds unbiblical, Not if you heard something offensive, because, duh. (laughs) But if you heard something that sounds unbiblical, please don't just assume and and take that with you. Give me the opportunity to work that out with you. If you're not on the city or online network, get on there before you leave. You can find me there, contact me. Any questions you have, uh, I'd be happy to answer. Let's pray, and let's take communion together. Uh, We have leaders up here who want to serve you this morning if you would come into the center and come forward and take the bread and the juice back to your seat um, we'll take it together Uh, father in heaven thank you for the word that you had for us today Uh, lord i pray that you would make us a people who are submissive to your word that we would be a people who who come beneath your word and say lord whatever whatever you have for us this we, we we desire God, I thank you for appointing, uh, not, not me, Lord, I, I want to thank you for appointing other teachers. God, thank you for raising up men and women um, and giving them a, a portion of your Holy Spirit so that they were able to, to understand and to see things that, that maybe others of us would be slow to see and slow to understand. And I thank you for the truth that has come uh, to our doorstep. We love you, Father. We ask that you would uh, raise up men in this church. That you would raise up godly single men. That you would raise up godly husbands. That you would raise up godly fathers who will humbly 
and lovingly lead in a direction that glorifies and honors you. That their purpose and intention in life would be to live a holy life that is pleasing to you, in obedience to you. God, I pray that you would raise up women in this church. Women who would shine, Lord. Women who would be adorned with a spirit that is in submission to you first and foremost. A quietness and a gentleness that radiates because of their dependence on Christ. We pray that these women would be examples to all of us, to the men, to the women, to the children. That we would live lives in submission to you, God. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up more families and marriages of men functioning as the heads that you have called them to be and wives functioning as the helpers that you have called them to be. That they would be examples to all of us. That it would be refreshing truth in a world that disdains such things. So we love you today and We give you praise and honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com. Bah.